Matthew chapter 6, 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Amen. The word of the Lord. Kind of a weird place to jump in here today if you haven't been tracking along, but I'll get you up to speed here. Thank you, Corey. We're in a New Testament book called The Gospel of Matthew, and this book was written by a follower of Jesus Christ named Matthew. Ah, his name was Levi, though, and then God changed his name to Matthew after he got saved. So extra credit for whoever said Levi. Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people say this Bible's written by people hundreds of years later. They didn't know Jesus. This is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And this guy wrote this book around 50 AD. And if you want a little context, the cross happened about 34-ish AD, somewhere around there, 36, right? And so here's somebody writing in 50 AD. How many years later is that? Math, yeah. So not too long after, right? And uh, that's the whole thing. Hey, can you remember something that happened 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Yeah. Well, some of you are hippies, though, so it doesn't, you know, like... (laughs) (laughs) The point is, is the Bible was written by people that lived with Jesus, They touched him. They smelled him. They hung out with him. They heard his heart. They watched him weep. They watched him laugh. And they wrote the accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These guys know Jesus, right? And they wrote down what they saw. And they wrote down what they heard. And this book is written by one of those. Now, the purpose of his writing was primarily to explain to his primarily Jewish audience that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. When you read the whole Old Testament— you can't help but, but come up with this question of, who is this guy that every one of these Old Testament books is saying that's going to come, that's going to deliver people from their sins? They're called prophecies or predictions. The whole Old Testament is filled with them, all prophesying that Jesus Christ would come. And Matthew is telling this Jewish audience that had the Old Testament, he's saying, that guy is Jesus. That's the purpose of Matthew's writing. Now, we're in a section of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, And it's a sermon, it's a message that Jesus gave to his disciples. Now, this message is not necessarily a message about how to be saved. It's a message of how you are to live because you are saved, right? It's If Jesus is the king of your life, if he's the long-awaited king and you've given your life to him and you surrendered to him and, and Jesus is Lord, as people say, right, then Jesus is teaching us how to live as his followers here. And uh, that's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a message to his followers teaching them how to live. Now, it goes from chapter 5 to chapter 7. And so, uh, those three chapters. We've been in this section that started at the beginning of chapter 6. It started at verse 1 and it goes all the way through 18. Now, as Jesus is teaching his disciples how to live, he's been talking about spiritual disciplines, In chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, they're dealing with spiritual disciplines. What's a spiritual discipline? Well, these are like the daily behaviors that a Christian is involved in. Um, Giving was the first one he talked about, verses, I think it was 1 through 5, chapter 6. 
Then he talked about the spiritual discipline of praying, of prayer. And today he talks about the spiritual discipline of fasting. Now, as he has been teaching about spiritual disciplines, he's been teaching by way of contrast. Well, what do I mean? He's been teaching by way of contrast, contrasting the phony religious people of his day, the way that they did spiritual disciplines, versus the way that his people should do spiritual disciplines, right? It's celebrity deathmatch, phony versus genuine, right? And he says that the, the religious phonies of his day, the Jewish establishment of his day was hypocritical. They were fakers. They acted religious and spiritual in front of people, but in their heart, he said, it was dead men's bones. He said they were just corrupt. Um, they were the type of people that put on a show for people about religion. You know, hey, look how spiritual I am. But behind closed doors and what was really going on in their heart was uh, greed and corruption and all these different things. And so Jesus called them whitewashed tombs at one point, like a casket. Like, it looks great on the outside, but open that thing up after there's been a rotting corpse in there. And that's what Jesus said of these people. So he said with their giving, he said they gave in such a way, they gave money, they did charitable deeds in such a way that people noticed them. Very much like the people with the golf check that go up on TV when they're going to donate to a charity and they're like, hey, he's going to give $15 and the check like costs more than $15. No, things are going on in my mind are crazy, right? But, but it's like that though. It's like the people that are trying to draw attention to themselves for the good deeds that they do. Oh, look at, I held the door for somebody the other day and I did this and I've given this much to this charity and all that. Oh, look at me, right? Well, Jesus says, that's all the reward you get then. God's not going to reward you for anything like that if you're doing it to be seen by men. Same thing with prayer. These religious people, they call, they're called the Pharisees. What they would do was they would pray on the street corners. And not that there's anything wrong with praying on the street corner, but they prayed on the corners for the purpose of everybody seeing them. And so they'd pray these super long prayers and people would look at them and go, oh man, how spiritual they are. And now he gets to the subject of fasting, and he's going to essentially deal with the same thing. I want you to be genuine in what you do. I don't want you to be a hypocrite. I don't want you to be two different people. And that's the point here today. Now, why is this so important? Well, I think it's really important because by and large in the Christian church in America today, and I want to stress in America because the church is different, obviously, in Africa. The church is obviously different in South America. The church is different because people are desperate for Jesus, even to the point to where they're losing their lives, possibly, to follow Jesus. So the American Western church, this is why I think this message is so important, so timely for us. The, the Western America church largely doesn't even practice spiritual disciplines, Right? People go to church on Sunday, they listen to a band, they get entertained a little bit, they go home, they forget all about the thing, they don't live like Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to be negative, I'm just saying that's just how it is a lot of times. You know why a lot of unbelievers don't want to come to Christ today? It's because they've seen Christians that are hypocritical, they're fake, right? Oh, you play like you're so good and all this and stuff, but then when I see you, you're doing the very same things that you criticize other people for, you're hypocrites, right? Well, that's why I think this message is so important. And I'm not trying to say that about anybody here. You know, I don't know what you do with your life. Some of you, I know what you do with your life, and I'm glad I do because you're a good witness to me. But I'm just saying, by and large, the American church, in, uh, you have to admit it's a little different environment here in America probably than it is to be sitting with bullets whizzing by your head just because you're trying to have a Bible study, right? You think maybe they have a little more skin in the game elsewhere, right? So that's why I think this message is so important, because 
as Christians, I know that there are many of you in here today that want to have a genuine, powerful spiritual life. I know that. I know you want to be faithful witnesses unto the Lord. I know that you want to be the best mother you can for the Lord, the best grandmother, the best father, the best husband, the best, you know, the best student, you know. And so that's why it's so important to learn from Jesus how to do spiritual disciplines and like what to do and how to do them. That's why I think this message is just so important for us today. Let me say this. A powerful public Christian life is built on spiritual disciplines that are practiced in private. A powerful public Christian life is built on spiritual disciplines practiced in private. That's really the main point of the message here today. So we're going to conclude this section by talking about the spiritual discipline of fasting. And the outline is very simple today. It's kind of a topical message. Uh, what is fasting? How should I fast? Why should I fast? Number one, what is fasting? Number two, how should I fast? Number three, why should I fast? What is fasting? He says, moreover, when you fast. Look at those first three words in the Bible there in chapter 6, verse 16. Moreover, when you fast. Now, What's the definition of fasting? It's abstaining from food. Very simple definition to start with. I'll give you an expanded version of the definition that would apply to us as Christians. But in its very essence, it's abstaining from eating food. Now, maybe a Christian definition would be fasting is abstaining from food for the purpose of laying aside distractions to draw near to God. It's abstaining from food for the purpose of setting aside distractions while you draw near to God. Are Christians commanded to fast? No. There's nowhere in the New Testament that God says, you know, you have to fast. But what do you assume by the way that Jesus introduces this little section here? He says, moreover, when you fast. What is Jesus, what do we get from that? What kind of insinuation comes from that? Do you think Jesus assumes that his disciples are going to fast by the way that he's talking here? Through this whole section, remember he says, when you give, don't give like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. When you fast, he's like assuming you will fast, right? It's just kind of an assumed thing. There is no command to do it, but Jesus' followers do all those things. They give, they pray, they fast. That's what his assumption is of us. Now, Let's look at uh, fasting in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. First of all, in the Old Testament, the majority of the instances the word shows up in the Old Testament, fasting is associated with mourning over sin and repentance from sin. The majority of the times in the Old Testament, there are exceptions. But by and large, the most of them, it's associated with mourning over sin and repentance. It's associated with mourning over sin because there was a day that the Jews were commanded to fast. Does anybody know what it is? Extra credit. Ah, Leviticus chapter 16. It's a holiday that the Jews still celebrate today, and it's called the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come, and what he would do is he would sacrifice two lambs. One was for a sin offering. The other one was called the scapegoat. The scapegoat, he would pray and place the sins of Israel metaphorically, figuratively, on the head of the scapegoat. This goat would run away, and the symbol was he was taking the sins of the people and running as far as the east is to west, and then he would sacrifice the other lamb. And what would happen, the symbology was that 
the sins of Israel were temporarily taken away, and that was for that year. And Israel was commanded to fast on that day. It wasn't like a holiday like we think of it. We think of cheer and, and all that, but the Day of Atonement was a day of solemn rest. It was a Sabbath. It was a day where you would fast and you would mourn over your sin. And you would also thank God that he'd provided this system of sacrifice that could temporarily take your sins. It was looking forward to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that permanently takes away your sins, right? God was teaching them. So the Day of Atonement, fasting was commanded, and fasting was associated with mourning over sin and repentance from it. Also, it's connected to mourning over sin in Joel chapter 2. Nineveh repented at the preaching of who? Jonah, right? Uh, And they repented in sackcloth and ashes. They were fasting. Uh, during that time. Also, uh, the nation of Israel fasted after the death of Saul and Jonathan. They fasted in connection with the revival that happened under the prophet Samuel. So different aspects of fasting. Majority of the times they're connected with uh, mourning over sin. Most extensive text on fasting in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 58 verses 1 through 7. The gist of it is God's people, Israel, are fasting, but then they get mad at God because they say, We fast, but you don't listen to our prayers. You don't answer our prayer. And God replies back to him and says, the reason I don't answer your prayer is because your fasting is hypocritical. You're doing it with the wrong motive in your heart. And in that chapter, Isaiah 58, 1 through 7, uh, God says to them, you're fasting for strife and for these different things. They're fasting to win arguments with people and to win fights. And they were mad that God wasn't like giving them the victory. And so God says, that's not what a fast is. God says, you know what true fasting is? It's when you loosen the bonds of people that are in bondage. And when you, it, essentially, he connects it to repentance of sin and direct obedience to God. So the point that I'm making is the Old Testament, fasting is associated with mourning over your sin and repenting from it. Fasting in the New Testament. Now, is this interesting? You guys good at that? I picked that up from watching this guy, Bill Federer at Jack Hibbs Church as he's teaching, he, he stops every now and he goes, is this interesting? And everybody's like, yeah, this is great. You guys are like, Old Testament? Yeah, Old Testament, man. Fasting in the New Testament, okay? So in the New Testament, fasting is not connected with sin as it is in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, uh, it's not connected with sin, and this is likely because the believers knew that their sins were forgiven in Christ. So fasting takes on a different um, meaning. In the New Testament, believers fasted to set aside distractions and focus on the Lord's will. It was a discipline that believers observed as they waited upon God, asking him to reveal his will for them. So you wanted to know God's will? You fasted. Acts chapter 10, in fact, there's a good example of it. In Acts chapter 10... There's this guy named Cornelius, and he's a Gentile. In the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 2, the church is made, essentially. The Holy Spirit comes upon believers, and the church is made. And um, you guys remember the story. People start speaking with tongues, and tongues of fire rest upon their head. That's the birth of the church. It's called Pentecost. Now, at first, the believers, after they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, they take the message to the Jews first, And it hasn't gone to the Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile, does everybody know what that means? Gentile is just a word for anybody that's not a Jew in those days. And the Jews hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated the Jews. And there was a strict division, uh, you know, like 
more than classism. We're talking like, you know, strong division between these two groups. But it's God's will that the message will go to all people. And so what happens in Acts chapter 10, the gospel starts going out to all people. But how God breaks the walls down between the Jews and the Gentiles is pretty interesting. There's this guy named Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile, and he, gets, he sees this vision. And as he sees this vision, he sees an angel. And this angel tells him, he, goes, he says, Cornelius, I want you to send two of your, or I want you to send three guys, and I want you to send them to this guy in Joppa, in this town named Joppa. And his name's Peter. And Peter's going to come back with them, and he's going to share the message of Christ with you, right? And so, you guys know the story, Cornelius sends three men, and they go to Joppa to find this guy, Peter. Well, Peter, the apostle Peter, he's staying with this guy named Simon, and that day he's praying on his roof. And that was common, the roofs or the patio areas in Israel. And so Peter's up there praying, and it says he's really tired, and he falls into a trance, and he's really hungry. And as he's in this trance, he sees this vision of all these animals, um, kosher animals, right, that Jews aren't supposed to eat. And Peter's a Jew, and he sees this vision of these animals all coming down in this like tablecloth sort of thing, and they're coming down. And God says to Peter in this vision, he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, in one of the funniest statements in the Bible, he says, not so, Lord. You can't say not so to the Lord. If he's Lord, you can't say not so to him. What are you talking about? But he says to him, not so, Lord. Okay, and Peter's in this vision. And he goes, I've never eaten anything unclean my whole life. In other words, I've always eaten kosher food. I'm a Jew. I've always been a good Jew. But God says, look, don't you call unclean or common that which I have cleansed. Now, this message, this isn't about food, although it is about food. Jews can eat bacon. This message is about the Gentiles. So, so God is telling Peter, hey, I've cleansed everybody. What I want is the gospel message to go to everybody. And God's telling Peter in this vision. Now, Peter comes up out of this vision, and he's pondering. And the Holy Spirit, it says, uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 19, that the Holy Spirit says to Peter, hey, there's three men that are going to show up at your door, and uh, there's these men, and I want you to go with them. Just, just go ahead and go with them. Weird, right? How God is breaking down the walls between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's doing it through visions, through supernatural means. Here's these guys from Cornelius' house. Peter goes with them. Now Peter is in Caesarea at Cornelius' house, and he shows up there, and um, a Jew would never go into the house of a Gentile, ever, ever. This was groundbreaking. You see, because the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no uh, rich, poor, uh, you know, male, female, Jew or Greek. Everybody's all one in Christ, right? And so God's breaking down the walls. And Peter shows up there, and Cornelius says, look, uh, you know, I had this vision, and uh, essentially that's how you ended up here. Acts chapter 10, verses 30 through 32 says this. Cornelius says, four days ago, I was fasting, and... Then he explains the vision I saw in this vision, send it go, guys, go get Peter. But right there, Cornelius explains this whole thing in connection with fasting. See, God's going to do this major move of the gospel, take the gospel to the Gentiles. Oh, the Gentiles? Right. And it's connected through fasting. Now, there's another one. Well, okay, I'll give you the, I didn't give you the cliffhanger, right? Uh, Peter preaches the gospel to their whole house, right? And even as he's preaching, they all have the baptism with the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're all speaking with tongues, and it's like Pentecost too. 
in the house, and they're all baptized with the Spirit. And they're all watching, going, wow, God can baptize the Gentiles with the Holy Spirit as well? Praise the Lord. And uh, so that's how it all turns out. Now, when you get into Acts chapter 13, there's another instance like this. Okay, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. The church of Antioch is all gathered together, and they're praying and they're fasting together. Now, while they're doing that, the Holy Spirit says to them, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. Now, just like Matthew, Levi, Matthew, Saul, Paul, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. The church is praying and fasting together, and the Holy Spirit says to them, Separate Paul and Barnabas to the work. And they do, and then Paul goes on three missionary journeys, and he plants like hundreds of churches all over the whole Roman world at that time. Greatest church planner ever, um, and major work of the Lord. But how did they discern that voice of the Lord? When did the Holy Spirit speak? They were praying and doing what? Oh my gosh, that, yeah, they were. You guys got it. Ah, that was, a, that was kind of a gimme, right? We're talking about fasting. <laughs> One more. As we read uh, Jesus, we read a few weeks ago, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, and he was fasting the whole time, and the devil was tempting him, right? Or the devil came at the end of the 40 days. Now, Jesus was likely fasting to discern, like, what's going to happen with his life, right? He's baptized, and then he goes out into the wilderness, and God's preparing his son for ministry. He'd been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he's fasting 40 days. So examples of New Testament fasting, they are all associated with waiting on the Lord to discern his will, clearing out the distractions out of life to discern the Lord's will, right? Now, so the biblical purpose of fasting, Old Testament mainly concerned with the mourning over sin and repentance, and the New Testament used for distract, uh, discerning the will of the Lord without distractions, just waiting on him for his help and for his guidance. There are different types of fasts in the Bible. Um, Jesus was, it said that he went without food 40 days. Uh, doctors, by the way, say that at about 40 days, that's when your body starts like digesting itself. You start like dying at that point. It's interesting that Satan waited to come to Jesus until then to start messing with him. So that's the fast from food, but yet he, we assume he was drinking water. Um, there is a fast. There, Paul fasts for three days without food or water. After he was converted on the road to Damascus, he was blind. He lost his sight for three days. He's taken into the city waiting for Ananias to come pray for him, and he's blind uh, that whole time before he receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it says he didn't eat or drink. We also see a partial fast in the book of Daniel. You guys remember that? Daniel uh, and his buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are taken into Babylonian captivity along with the rest of the Jews, and they try to start forcing the non-kosher diet on them. And Daniel says, tell you what, let me opt out of that, but I'll just, you just give me vegetables. It's okay. And then um, see what happens, you know. And uh, so Daniel gets out of having to eat the non-kosher food um, so he can be obedient to the Lord. And he, so that's kind of a partial fast. Actually, Rick Warren, I think it was, made a book called The Daniel Fast. He tried to market that into a diet plan, which is like, I mean, it's all right, you know, to do stuff like that. But I, I don't know. I don't, never mind. My opinion doesn't matter. But there is a book called The Daniel Fast. So if you're looking to get some encouragement just to eat some vegetables, um, I recommend it. <clears throat> now, today we hear people talking about fasting. They say, well, I'm going to do a Facebook fast. You know, 
I'm going to be on Twitter and Instagram and uh, TikTok and Snapchat the whole time, but I do a little Facebook fast. No, that's not fasting. Uh, people say, I'm going to do a chocolate fast. I can stand to do that. A lot of chocolate. That technically is not fasting. Fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. That's what fasting is in its strictest definition. These other things are deprivation. It would be really good if a lot of people would take less time and spend in front of a television or a computer or on their phone and spend more time focusing on the Lord. That'd be a great thing. Um, but that's more of like deprivation for a good purpose than it is actual fasting. So still recommend that too, um, you know, to anybody. Now, one thing to understand, some more things to understand about fasting is it's not a way to get your will done. This is when I was an early on in the Christian life, I used to struggle with this. I thought, if I, you know, I really want God to do something. I'll fast until he does it, you know. I'll go on the hunger strike until God will do what I wanted to do. <laughs> well, I thought that's what it was about, you know. Uh, didn't last very long, you know, because God didn't do what I wanted to do. But he's God. I'm not God. <laughs> so, good. Probably good he didn't do what I wanted him to do. So God's not about, twi- or fasting's not about twisting God's arm, right? Fasting is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to give your undivided attention to God, to hear from him. Fasting is refraining from eating food for the purpose of laying aside distractions to draw near to God. Fasting is a tremendously powerful spiritual discipline. Before you were a Christian, you're spiritually dead, right? The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, you're dead in trespasses and sins. Um, The Bible says because of the sin of Adam and Eve, Um, that all humans are born in sin. They're born spiritually dead. This is why you hear people saying you need to be born again. Born again Christians aren't a type of Christians. The only genuine Christianity is you need to be born again. In other words, you have to come from that spiritually dead place that you were born in, and you have to experience a new spiritual birth. This part of you inside needs to come alive by the Spirit of God coming inside of you and living. And if you're not born again, you're not going to heaven. That's what the Bible teaches, right? Now, here's the thing. When that spirit comes inside of you, when you say yes to Jesus Christ, you still have that old nature inside of you, right? That old nature that's like corrupt and perverted and lies and cheats and wants to overeat and wants to be lazy and wants to be selfish. That's really the root of it is it wants to be selfish. All that's still in there. So you've got this new life in Christ that wants to do the right thing, that doesn't sin, that's, that's good. And you've got this old nature inside of you that wants to do bad, you know? Now, has anybody ever experienced a battle in their Christian life between wanting to do the right thing and the wrong thing? Does anybody ever do that? See, everybody, you can... Some people are like, no, not me. Like, I'm, sin, I'm sinless. Yeah, well, let's ask your wife. You're not sinless. Every day, all day long, battle, battling, Right? It's because you have an old nature and a new nature, and they're pinned against each other, and they're fighting against each other. Good news, when you die, that'll be over with. That's something to look forward to. I Really, I am looking forward to it. So here's the thing. There's this old proverb that the Hindus talk about it and Native Americans do. It's common. It says that we've got two dogs inside of us, right? Ever heard this? You feed the one, feed the other. Whichever one you feed gets strong. There's a rabid dog inside of you that wants to destroy you. You keep feeding that one, 
You keep living a life of defeat and destruction and sin. You feed the other one, you live a powerful life in Christ, right? And the same thing is true. If I sit and I feed my flesh, my flesh is going to win the day a lot of times. Now, I talk to a lot of Christians, and they say, I'm just having a hard time overcoming sin. I don't overhear the word of God. I don't, I don't hear the will of God. I don't feel like I'm close to God. I'm not connected. The sins that I do, I keep doing them. I'm doing the same thing as I was last year. I can't get any victory in this life. I'm still addicted. I'm still depressed. I'm still anxious. I'm still worried about everything. I'm fearful. I'm doubting. I'm angry. I yell at people. I'm despondent at times. I'm, I'm all these things that I don't seem to get any victory at all of them. And then the question then would to be to them, what are you feeding? What are you feeding? Anybody that spends more time feeding the flesh than they do feeding the spirit can expect nothing less than a life of defeat and depression and anxiety and worry and addiction and anger and selfishness. All that stuff. So the question to anybody that says, I'm having a real hard time with this thing, that's, what are you feeding? What are you doing all week long? The Puritans used to call fasting soul fattening. I like that. Soul fattening. <laughs> How fat's your soul? What have you been feeding this week? I have to reject the things that come in my mind sometimes. I'm thinking about Seymour, you know, or Little Shop of Horrors. And he, he's got the plant, feed me, Seymour, <laughs> right? The whole thing just takes him over, you know? It's kind of a picture of your flesh in the way. Your flesh is saying, feed me. Let me be selfish. Flesh, self, flesh, self, flesh. That's almost the same word. Leave me alone. I want to watch TV. I want to eat whatever I want. I just want to do whatever I want. I want to live for me. I'm the god of my own life. I'm, you know, I'm the master of my own ship. I'm the captain of my destiny. I won't bow to anybody it's all about me. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I'm a strong person. All that stuff, that's what the flesh sounds like, right? No. Need some soul fattening. So, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus has been focusing on these spiritual disciplines. People's giving, their prayer, their fasting. And these things are just tragically neglected. Right? especially fasting, especially fasting. I've only met a few people in my life that take this as a real, true spiritual discipline. But it's sad that a lot of Christians aren't taking any three of those things as a spiritual discipline, right? Um, giving, you know. How many people don't see that as a spiritual discipline, as an act of worship? They sit before the Lord and they say, Lord, how much would you like me to give of my income and what kind of charitable deeds would you like me to do? And they ask God and they hear from God and they do it as a matter of discipline. Same thing with prayer. Same thing with fasting. I commend it to you, though. If you want, you know, you want some victory over sin in your life, addictions, depressions, anger, try fasting. Try to practice these things. Number two. Now, all these points are not this long, Okay to help you. <laughs> Number two, how should I fast? Jesus says right there, um, verse 16b, so it's the second part of 
starts at the second part of verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say that they have their reward. So it was common knowledge that the Jews in this day, you read uh, the early church fathers and you read commentaries from this time, and what they did was they would purposefully make their faces look like they'd even put ashes on their face to make themselves look so uh, disheveled, so beat up. So people would look at them and go, wow, they're fasting. And they fasted on a couple of days a week. Uh, The Pharisees committed to these two days a week that were very popular days in the market, right? And so all the people are in there, and they think, this is a great opportune time for me to appear to be fasting, right? And they, you know, so you go up to them, hey, how's it going, brother? Oh, fasting. (laughs) Whoa. Brush your teeth, bro. Wash your face. (laughs) In fact, that's what Jesus says next, right? He says, anoint your head and, you know, take care of your hygiene when you're fasting. Verse 17 there. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. Anoint your head means they used to put oil on their face. That was kind of the, the thing back in those days was to make your face real shiny. And that was the look of being clean. You had olive oil on your face and you look really clean. So Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face. Comb your hair, brush your teeth. Stop drawing attention to yourself for fasting, you know. And then verse 18, he says, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. Now, people that want to appear to be more spiritual than they are, they hate that right there because they don't want to do their Christianity in a way so where people don't think they're spiritual. They're like, that's why I'm involved with Christianity is so everybody knows that I'm spiritual, right? I want all the parents to think that I'm a good parent because I take my kids to church. I want everybody to think that of me, right? You know, so they get to that verse and they go, I don't like this, you know, I want to do my Christianity so you see it. I love to sit in place in church so when I start doing this, that everybody sees how spiritual I am, you know? Even I'm, I'm doing the worship javelin. I'm doing worship cartwheel in the church. I'm kicking plants over because I'm praising the Lord, right? I'm just so, I'm so spiritual. Oh, man, you want everybody to look at you. The flesh says, look at me. Look at me. We do it in subtle ways even too. I was praying the other day, and, you know, after about the fourth hour, my back really started to hurt. But I prayed to the Lord, and since I had fasted for 14 days, he just healed it. No big deal. All glory to God. Man, you're a phony. (laughs) You know? So don't be a phony is what Jesus is saying right there. Verse 18, then last point. I told you these were faster. Last point. Why should I fast? Look it. So that you do not appear to men to be fasting. Oh, well, that's why not to fast, right? So you're not doing your, you know, and it applies to any spiritual discipline. You're not doing this Christianity stuff to get a pat on the back from anybody, right? But to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Don't fast to appear to be fasting and spiritual to other people, but do this to appear before God So God, he sees in secret. He sees the motive of your heart. He sees what's going on in your life at all times. God sees right now what's going on in your heart, in your mind, in your thoughts. He sees everything about you. He knows you. And what Jesus says is do your fasting so God can see that. And God who sees in secret will reward you openly. 
a powerful public Christian life is built on private spiritual disciplines, right? That's what Jesus is saying right there. No. Why do you fast? It's because I want a powerful spiritual life. I want to be a Christian that hears the will of God. I want to be a Christian that discerns what decisions to make in life, what to say no to, what to say yes to. I want to be the sort of Christian that when I share the word of God with other people, the Holy Spirit is at work and convicts them and brings them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want the sort of relationship with God that when I pray, he answers my prayers. The Bible says anything that you ask in my name, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do for you. I want that kind of relationship with Jesus where when I read that verse, I don't wonder what the heck he's talking about, right? A lot of Christians stumble in that verse. It says, Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, my father will do for you. Really? I don't know God like that. Well, let's talk about, you know, What's going on in private? That's the kind of relationship I want. Why do you fast? Because you want that sort of relationship with God. You know, I remember I used to be a skateboarder. Anybody ever skate? No? I'm the only skateboarder in the room? Well, when you were a skateboarder, there was this one word that you never wanted to be called, and it was a poser right? Poser! You'd get called that for skating. Now, here's what a poser was. A poser was somebody that their mommy bought them a skateboard, real expensive one. They had the clothes, they had the shoes, they had a thrasher shirt, they had all the stuff going. But then you'd watch them skate and you're like, dude, you don't practice skating. Come on, man. You're a poser, bro. They'd even sometimes duct tape their shoes up because like when you skate, you would do this thing called an ollie and the grip tape on the skateboard would rip this part of your shoe out. So you duct tape your shoe so it doesn't destroy your shoe. And there's dudes that would paint, they would just tape their shoe. And you'd be like, come on, bless you. Like, you know, come on, man, you're a poser. I don't want to be a poser. I used to look at skateboarders like Tony Hawk and be like, oh, you guys know who Tony Hawk is? Nobody skates in here, but everybody knows Tony Hawk. Huh. This guy, you look at Tony Hawk and you go, man, wow, he did the first 900. 900 degrees on a half pipe. Turn around. I don't know how many times that is, right? 360 divided by 900. How, what is that? Math? Claire, you were on the math earlier. Who's good? Is it three? I don't know. Can't, yeah, I think it's three. Yeah. Two and a half? Yeah, two and a half. So you go up, come back down. Yeah. Two and a half. Is that right? I don't know. Get your calculator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And Tony Hawk did the 900. And, you know, people would go and be like, Lord, let's do the 900. <laughs> you know how Tony Hawk learned how to do the 900? Practice. Day after day, after day, after day, after day, in private, in private. doesn't matter what people think. I'm doing this. I'm working at it, you know. Same thing with any basketball player. Same thing with any golfer. Same thing with any athlete. Same thing with anybody of any kind that's good at anything is because there are hours and hours of private discipline put into the thing. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You want a powerful public Christian life, you want to be a strong minister, and the Lord is based on what you do in private. You want to walk with the Lord? It's based on what's going on when nobody's looking. 
except for him who sees in secret. So I want to challenge us with this this week, and uh, I think it's apropos to call a fast for the church. Now, we're not going to brag to each other about how fasting we are, bro, but let's, uh, here's the plan. This week, we're going to break the fast. Next week, Sunday service, we're going to have communion together. Oh my gosh, we only have communion on the first Sunday of the month. What will we do? Well, we're going to live, and we're going to have communion next week, Lord willing. And so, you pick however many days you want to fast, and then we're going to break the fast together while we're having communion. In other words, the first food we're going to consume is going to be the Lord's table together, right? And what we're going to do during this time is we're going to pray for Elena during this time. We're going to pray the whole time uh, for her, and we're also going to pray for this addiction ministry that we're going to start as a church, uh, Lord willing, and we're going to pray for the children's ministry, that uh, for the youth that are about to start school back up here. And those three things... Uh, you know, if you're going to write them down, write them down. Elena, addictions ministry, and uh, kids starting school. And pick as many days you're going to go. Now, disclaimer, you know, if you have health issues, maybe you want to talk with your doctor first, like you're diabetic or something, I don't know. So I want to challenge us with this, just to get into this practice. What is fasting? It's abstaining from food. Why should I fast? Or how should I fast? Not like a poser. Um, why should I fast to experience the reward of the Lord? Now, I want to make a conclusion here, and we're done, okay? As we've been looking at spiritual disciplines uh, today, as a believer in Jesus Christ, let me ask you, um, if you want to have a great spiritual life, do you want to have a life like Peter, like John, like James, like the saints that we read about in church history? Um, these people practice spiritual disciplines in private. James, the guy that wrote the letter of James, they said that he had grooves down next to his bed where his knees were always on the ground from praying. <laughs> That's a lot of praying. Uh, in the wood, in the floor. You know, they had, he had groove marks worn in there. I don't know if it's true or whatever. That's what they say, church history. I just want to encourage this. You might be saying, man, this is new to me, and this is my, my life is so busy. I don't know when I'm going to do this sort of thing. I can sympathize with you. Uh, my wife has three jobs. Um, well, if you count taking care of me, that's a pretty big job. But aside from teaching here, she has, which takes a lot of preparation. By the way, she has two other jobs. We own a housekeeping business, and we, she also works at Pastabella doing extreme labor. You know, anybody that works there, labors to serve people. It's hard work. Um, I'm not trying to elevate her if she wasn't. I do this all the time. <laughs> but I understand that you're busy. And um, we're all busy, right? We're all busy. But it comes down to priorities. It comes down to what you want in life. And um, if you want to put Jesus Christ first, if you want to seek first the kingdom of God, um, it, it just requires sacrifice. There's no way around it. I don't ever want to be that sort of church that makes it seem like it's just no sacrifice involved with being a Christian because that's, that's just not reality. That's not Christ-like. You know? And there are churches that are content to do that, just to say, hey, come listen to a message, put a little money in the box, and go about your life, and that's it. But that's not Christianity, right? Christianity is what happens in private more than it is what happens in public, right? So make time. If that's, if that's what's on your heart, make time. But start small, you know, if you, if you want. Just start small. You can fast a day. You can fast a half a day, right? 
And the point is, is every time your body starts telling you, oh, it's time to eat, it's time to eat, take that impulse from your flesh and say, no, 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 no. I'm going to take you, that old nature that's still trying to make me want to live like an animal. I'm going to say, no, (laughs) no to that. I'm a spiritual being. Spirit is uppermost in my life, not my body. And so you go through a period of time of doing that. And essentially, you're teaching your body that it's not boss over you anymore. My kids always say that. You're not the boss of me. You can say that to your body. You're not the boss of me. The Lord is the boss of me. So that's that. Um, you know, if you've never come into a relationship with Christ today, I want to make that available to you. And um, uh, first of all, I'm going to explain the gospel to you in a very simple way, the way to be saved, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've never come into a relationship with him, first of all, it starts with you um, admitting that you're a sinner. That's the first step of the gospel. You realize that God created you, but you've fallen short because of sin. We've all inherited Adam and Eve's punishment due for their sin, and we all sin, right? I don't have to scan myself very long to find out that I'm a sinner, right? It's common, common knowledge to me. So the, the first step of coming to Christ is responding to that conviction on your conscience and saying, okay, you're right, God. I've broken your laws. I'm a sinner. You know, and, and it starts with admitting this to him, coming clean, being honest, stopping with all the excuses. Well, I was just made like this. Well, I just grew up in a family where my parents were you know, crazy alcoholics and, you know, Whatever else it is, you stop with all the excuses and you just say, Lord, I'm responsible for myself and I've broken your laws. The good news is um, that God so loved his world, God so loved you, that he sent his only son, um, that whosoever would believe in him will not die, but have everlasting life. And so what God did to fix the problem of sin was he came in the person of Jesus Christ and he took the penalty that is due for everybody's sin, for your sin and my sin, And at the cross, what is happening is God the Father is laying on God the Son all the penalty due of every sin in this world, past, present, and future. All the sin that you've committed, everything that you've fallen short, all the things that people know about, all the things you've been caught for, all the things you haven't been caught for, all the things that never made it out of your mind but were still in your heart, all the penalty of that was laid upon Jesus Christ. As he hung there and he took his last breath, his last words were, It is finished. What that means is all the punishment for sin, all laid on him. Right? That's good news. Bad news is you're a sinner and God's, you know, you're going to die. The good news is, is God wants to fix your problem, so he sent his son to take the rap for you. You say, well, how does this work? God has chosen to make it easy for you to be saved. Easy in the sense where it's, it's just not complicated. You don't have to go and do a bunch of rituals. You don't get saved by taking communion. You don't get saved by church membership. You don't get saved by baptism. You don't get saved by keeping sacraments. You don't get saved by your good works, by knocking on doors. You get saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting him. That's how you get saved. You trust the Lord. You say, I will receive that. What you did at the cross, Jesus, you died in my place. You took the penalty I deserved. I'll believe that and I'll trust in you. And if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, the Bible says you'll be saved, right? It's just like that. And you will experience a new birth. You'll experience a transformation. 
The Holy Spirit of God will come in your life. He'll give you new desires. He'll give you a new life. Praise God. It's that simple. Believing doesn't just mean that I believe God exists and that Jesus did what he did. Believing means trusting in him as he is my Lord. He's my Savior. And I will give my life to him as my Lord and my Savior. And I'll follow him. I'll trust in him. <clears throat> That's what it is uh, to be saved. Admit, believe, confess. Those three things, like the ABC, is very simple. If you have been experiencing guilt in your life, I want to encourage you that God made humans with a conscience to feel guilt. That's a normal thing. You know what they call people that don't experience guilt? Psychotic, sociopath, narcissists. If you feel guilt over the things that you've done or the things that you're doing, and you're outside of Christ, that's a normal thing, right? Because that drives you to the forgiveness that only comes from Jesus Christ. A lot of people do things to hide their guilt, to squelch it. They get drunk. They do drugs. They smoke weed. They do pills. They have sex. Beat people up. Angry. Violent. They, all kinds of they, they overwork. They obsess themselves with how they look. They do all kinds of things to try to make the guilt go away, but it never does. There's only one thing that's going to make the guilt go away, and that's coming to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. That's it. It's a good thing that you have that guilt. Let it drive you to Jesus Christ today. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that is found in it. And uh, thank you, Lord, that you've called us to a genuine spiritual life. Thank you mostly, God, that through spiritual disciplines and through Christianity and through the Word, we get to know you. We get to know that you're wonderful, that your love is unending, that you forgive us, you cleanse our conscience, Lord, you fix our biggest problem, our problem of sin. Heavenly Father, I pray for anybody here today that's hearing this gospel message that you've called them to respond to that message today. Lord, I do pray that nothing would hinder that, no thoughts, no guilt of the enemy, no, no, no thoughts of... I'm not worthy or, or no distraction from the enemy. But may their guilt and their conscience, Lord, may that drive them to you, that they can come and receive forgiveness. I thank you, Father, that you're the one that does the calling, that your Holy Spirit works. And we pray, Lord, that you would do your work, that you would get the glory for what goes on here, for what's happening right now and today. Thank you for the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, and we want to bless you with our lives. And so we ask, help us in Jesus' name.